This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. This month is the 10th anniversary of the Citizens United. This month is the 10th anniversary of the Citizens United decision, a decision that is as controversial today as when the Supreme Court handed it down. The court held that corporations have a First Amendment right to spend money independently to support or oppose candidates for office. My guest is Professor Rick Hassan of the University of California Irvine School of Law. So, Rick, remind us about the ruling in Citizens United. Sure. Well, Citizens United was a case that addressed the question whether corporations, whether business corporations or nonprofit corporations, could spend sums independently to support or oppose candidates for federal office. So if you're General Motors or Google and you want to run an ad saying, you know, vote for Hillary Clinton or vote for Donald Trump, it used to be illegal to be able to do that under federal law. And the Supreme Court in Citizens United said that such a law violates the First Amendment. How did the court come to the conclusion that corporations have a First Amendment right? In some earlier cases, the Supreme Court suggested that corporations are artificial entities. They don't have necessarily the same rights. What the Supreme Court, in uh, in an opinion by Justice Kennedy, said was that corporations are really associations of individuals. Uh, You know, there are the the managers and the shareholders, and they might decide to speak together, you know, kind of – the court analogized them to kind of a, a, a group of people who might have an opinion and that they might pull their uh, resources together. Others, you know, in the dissenters, such as Justice Stevens, rejected that and said that corporations don't have a soul. They're not like regular people, and they should not have exactly the same First Amendment rights as individuals. So you write that Citizens United actually changed the way money influences politics, but not in the way it was expected to. Explain what it's done. Sure. So some people thought that uh, Citizens United would lead corporations to be spending lots of money directly in elections. That has not happened, uh, in part because we have disclosure laws. And so uh, we've had some companies, like uh, we had a situation with uh, the company Target that spent money supporting a candidate for office, and then people started protesting against that. You know, you don't want to alienate your customers. Uh, And so when corporations spend money, they tend to put it through different organizations like trade associations, like the Chamber of Commerce or something like that. So that change was not really dramatic in terms of corporate spending. What was much more dramatic were follow-on decisions of the courts and the Federal Election Commission, which led to the creation of super PACs. These are uh, groups that pool money from individuals and corporations unions and spend money in elections. And it's gotten fairly dramatic in terms of how much money individuals and others are willing to spend. So, for example, in 2010, the largest contributors to PACs and other groups were uh, Robert and Doyleen Perry of Perry Homes, who donated about $7.5 million to support candidates. In 2018, the largest contributors were Sheldon Adelson and his wife Miriam, who contributed $122 million, so a 16-fold increase in the kinds of big spending uh, in elections, mostly by individuals, but also by corporations and other entities. Now, can corporations hide contributions in certain ways? So now that we have these so-called super PACs, these are political organizations that don't contribute directly to candidates but can take contributions from others, uh, what we've seen is the creation of different kinds of entities. A corporation might create an entity like an LLC 
give money to the LLC, and that LLC then gives money to the super PAC. And so there are ways to try to launder your identity. It's, it's a little tricky, but if you hire a good election lawyer, it's possible to hide your identity at least for a time when you're doing this. Plus, the, some of these uh, associations that are uh, involved in spending money, such as 501c4 organizations, which are social welfare organizations, and C6s like the Chamber of Commerce, they can take campaign uh, money from corporations, and they, by law, do not have to disclose their donors. So there are ways that corporations and others can hide their identities and still try to influence the outcome of elections. What did Citizens United rule about disclosures? One of the other holdings of Citizens United, which gets much less attention, was the Supreme Court on an eight-to-one vote upheld uh, pretty stringent disclosure rules and said that there's not a constitutional problem with that. The reason we don't have good disclosure today on the federal level is not because the Supreme Court has blocked it, but because uh, entrepreneurs and, and lawyers have found ways around the disclosure rules, and Congress has not uh, come in and fix those rules. There's now a partisan divide over whether we should have stronger disclosure rules, and so it's a political problem. I should point out, though, that since the Supreme Court's decision in Citizens United, some of the newer conservative justices might side with Justice Thomas, who was the one dissenter in the Citizens United case, who said that there is a right to anonymous speech. He, he was on the opposite side of the issue from Justice Scalia, a fellow conservative who believed that uh, there is no right in the First Amendment to anonymous speech, at least in this context. And so things might change at the courts, but as of now, Congress could make our disclosure laws much better if it decided to act. I've been talking about the 10th anniversary of the Citizens United case and how it changed politics in America with Professor Rick Hassan of the University of California Irvine School of Law. I think most of us remember that moment in 2010 when President Barack Obama was giving his State of the Union speech and he criticized Citizens United saying it could theoretically permit foreign nations to try to influence the outcome of U.S. elections. And we remember that Justice Alito was shaking his head no at that point. Has that come to pass? Well, it's interesting because uh, when Alito you know, said it was not true, the reason it was not true is because in uh, the Citizens United opinion itself, there's a statement saying, we're not addressing the question whether you can ban foreign spending and foreign contributions in elections. And in fact, it was a few years later in an opinion by then judge, now Justice Kavanaugh, a lower court said that the federal ban on foreign money in elections is constitutional. And the Supreme Court affirmed that decision without issuing an opinion. And yet what we've seen now is that it's become, through these super PACs, it's become much easier for foreign money to come into elections. Uh, one of the things we saw with the two Giuliani associates, uh, Parnas and Fruman, is that they funneled $300,000 from a Ukrainian oligarch into a pro-Trump super PAC. Uh, and this was in part possible because of the, our inadequate disclosure laws and the fact that people now can give so much money to these different entities like super PACs. In addition to Parnas and Fruman giving money to the pro-Trump super PAC, uh, we had a recent indictment coming out of uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office in Los Angeles of people who gave over $3.5 million to both Democrats and Republicans, starting with a million dollars to Priorities USA, which is one of the main Democratic super PACs. So we're seeing foreign money illegally coming into elections being laundered through these various entities in a way that was not possible before Citizens United started us down the road. That brings up another point. Did Citizens United benefit Democrats more than Republicans or Republicans more than Democrats or too hard to tell? 
Well, it's interesting, uh, and, you know, it's still kind of early because every election cycle tends to be different. And also, in the decade since Citizens United, we've had this technological revolution where it's become so much cheaper to raise money over the Internet in small dollars. It used to be you'd have to send mailings, and it would be very expensive. Certainly, if you look at the amount of money that is contributed by mega donors, we see both Republican and Democratic uh, support. So there's Michael Bloomberg, there's uh, Tom Steyer, right? Both now running for president, both uh, giving in the tens of millions of dollars in uh, elections. And of course, Sheldon Adelson and his wife, uh, as I had said, gave something like $122 million in 2018, which is a midterm election. So uh, I think generally speaking, the interests of the wealthy are overrepresented in our campaign finance system, but sometimes that means giving money to Democrats rather than to Republicans. Also, we've seen undisclosed money, money, so-called dark money. Uh, in the last election, we saw more Democratic undisclosed money than Republican undisclosed money. Now, Democrats say they're opposed to Citizens United, but I think they're not unilaterally disarming. They're going to play by the rules as they exist. And so they're doing some of the same things that the Republicans uh, have been doing for uh, a few years more than them. You also write that super PACs became shadow campaigns sometimes? Right. So uh, this was another development that uh, occurred since uh, Citizens United. If you are a uh, presidential candidate, um, you are not allowed to coordinate with an outside group uh, like a super PAC. Uh, federal law says that what makes you independent uh, is that you're not co coordinating on advertising. But there are lots of other ways to uh, coordinate. And so we saw some really interesting things happen in the 2016 election. Carly Fiorina, when she was running for the Republican nomination for president, she had a you know not a very strong campaign finance operation in her own campaign, but yet there were some very wealthy people backing Fiorina. They created a super PAC. That super PAC essentially did all the advance work for the Fiorina campaign. They would look at her public schedule. They would go and they would put up Fiorina signs and they would do what they could to help promote her. We also saw this with Jeb Bush. You may remember Bush, uh, seen as an early front runner, never really got any traction, but got you know a couple of hundred million dollars of support, which really gave him a chance to get his message out there, even if voters uh, didn't like it. And then there was John Kasich. Uh, before he ran for president in 2016, he actually made commercials for his super PAC and argued that he was allowed to do that before he officially declared as a candidate. And that's something that uh, you know has been uh, the subject of uh, complaints at the Federal Election Commission. So we're seeing lots of super PACs acting as shadow campaign entities for uh, candidates. They've just avoided some of the more egregious kinds of coordination that could certainly get them into legal trouble. What about campaign contribution limits? Where does the Supreme Court stand on limits, and where is it likely to go? The question of whether campaign contribution limits might raise constitutional questions is this is really the next shoe to drop at the Supreme Court. So in a case after Citizens United, a case called McCutcheon, which I believe was a 2014 case, uh, in that case, the Supreme Court struck down a rule that said that people were limited in the total amount of contributions they gave to all federal candidates, a so-called aggregate contribution limit. And in that opinion, written by Chief Justice Roberts for a majority of the conservative justices, uh, the court took the view that um, 
the kind of scrutiny that is applied to campaign contributions needs to be more rigorous than it has been in the past. And so it may be at some point that the Supreme Court's going to weigh in and start striking down more campaign contribution limits. The fact is, though, that the court had a major opportunity this uh, past few months to weigh in in a case out of Alaska about its $500 campaign contribution limits and make a major statement. Instead, the court quickly reversed the case without really making much law and, and really punted it back to the lower courts to try to deal with the question. If the court addresses the question of campaign contribution limits again, it could lead to a situation where people would be able to give large or unlimited contributions to candidates. But the court doesn't seem to have any appetite right now for delving back into that issue, probably because they have so many other controversial issues on their plate, from abortion to immigration to the environment to the President Trump subpoenas and maybe eventually impeachment. Was there anything that you found positive in Citizens United? Well, I was certainly happy with the idea that um, campaign disclosure laws were found to be constitutional. There was widespread uh, agreement that it was not just disclosure of campaign ads that explicitly called for the election or defeat of a candidate, but also ads that mention a candidate or feature a candidate in the period close to the election. And the Supreme Court said, and Justice Scalia famously said this, that you need to have some civic courage. And if you're going to spend money on elections, you're going to try to influence your fellow citizens, you should at least stand up and say who you are. And, and voters use the information about who's spending money on elections as a proxy. If they know that, uh, you know, a Sheldon Adelson or a, or a Tom Steyer is behind uh, a candidate, that sends them a message about whether or not they might support that candidate as well. So I do think that the bright spot of Citizens United was the recognition that campaign disclosure laws do not violate the First Amendment. When you look at the recent campaign, the presidential campaign, is grassroots financing in any way starting to balance out the big money contributions? Well, I believe that the Brennan Center recently issued a report uh, that uh, concluded that while grassroots financing of elections uh, has greatly increased and has given more of a voice, it is still swamped by these mega donors who are giving tens of millions of dollars or more. And it's very hard, you know, it takes a lot of people giving $50 to reach the kind of spending that we see from some of these very large contributors. Well, I have you here. I want to ask you about the upcoming election and with U.S. officials warning that Russia's election interference in 2020 could be more brazen than in the 2016 presidential race or the 2018 midterm election. Do you see that? Well, uh, yeah, I actually have a whole book coming out on the question of whether we're going to have an election meltdown. And one of my concerns is about dirty tricks coming from uh, outside the United States or even inside the United States, because we've seen some domestic dirty tricks as well. I think there are a lot of challenges. I think people are going to have to be vigilant and we're going to have to think about what we need to do to ensure that whoever wins the election, that losers will accept the results of the election as legitimate, that it was a fair process. Are we likely to see more disinformation or actual hacking? Well, I think that we need to be on guard against uh, both of those things. Uh, there certainly will be disinformation. There's been disinformation in the past uh, in elections, but now social media makes it much easier and technology makes it much easier to lie and to spread false information and, and to make it uh, much more difficult for voters to separate truth from fiction. But I also think that there's danger not just of hacking voter registration databases, but one of the things that I talk about in the upcoming book 
is uh, what about a Russian hack of the power grid in Detroit on Election Day, uh, where Michigan is the pivotal state in the election? There's all kinds of things that could happen, all kinds of nefarious things that we need to be on guard against uh, in the run-up to Election Day and on Election Day itself and in the post-Election Day counting. Thanks for being on Bloomberg Law, Rick. That's Professor Rick Hassan of the University of California, Irvine School of Law. A note, Mike Bloomberg is also seeking the Democratic presidential nomination. Bloomberg is the founder and majority owner of Bloomberg LP, the parent company of Bloomberg News. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcast. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.